This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Game rule taxonomy. Republican changes. More telling you more. And Alan Moore, a cultist. Pieces of Eight from our freebooting pals at Atlas Games is a pirate ship combat game played with coins. Minted metal coins that clink in your hand. And that's it. No board, no dice, no meeples, no colored cubes. Just coins made out of metal. To play Pieces of Eight, you hold a stack of pirate coins in your hand. That's your ship. And you hold one coin in your other hand. That's your crow's nest. Coins represent things like cutlasses, mates, barrels of grog, And the captain's monkey. Each coin has a special ability you use to attack your enemies. Your enemies being other scurvy players and their own filthy coins. When coins get blown to kingdom come, they go to the Davy Jones locker of your pants pocket. The last player with a surviving captain coin wins. One of the cool things about Pieces of Eight is that you don't need a table to play. Because of all the coins are either in your hand or in your pocket. So it's great for car trips. Or standing in line. Also a great pub game. Because if you're doing the pub right... All the little pub tables are already busy holding your pub drinks up off the pub ground. The no-table gimmick is clever, but Pieces of Eight is also a great game. For example, it won the Origins Awards Vanguard Award for Innovation in Game Design, and it was a nominee for the crazy prestigious Diana Jones Award. Designed by the worthy yet modest Jeff Tidball, who wrote this ad copy but was too shy to credit himself. How tragically Minnesotan of him. Yes, I guess we'll never know who designed this brilliant, groundbreaking game. But we do know that Atlas Games is running a limited-time clearance of Pieces of Eight coin sets right now. Each set contains enough coins for four players, and the limited-time price includes shipping and handling. Let's recap. Pieces of Eight is a pirate ship combat game played with minted metal coins. You don't need a table, so it's great for long lines, car trips, and pub gaming. It's an award-winning design for expert-certified great gaming. And right now, you can get a four-player Pieces of Eight package at a limited-time drop-everything price. Shipping and handling included. Learn more at atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-po8. That's atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-the-letter-p, the letter O, and the number 8. Or follow the link in the show notes. That might be best. <laughs> The clatter of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive tell us we have entered the shag-carpeted confines of the Gaming Hut. And here within the Gaming Hut, we have our rules books and our supplement rules books and our rules addende and our storytellers guides scattered out all over the table, our highlighters out, because we are going to dig deep and decide on a taxonomy of rules intent. The Gaming Hut, solving problems you didn't know were problems that may not be problems when we're done solving them. Robin, what do we think about rules? How can we classify these things to um, uh, maybe show a little uh, maze out of this hedge that we found ourselves in? Right, because we, we talk about a lot, a lot of rule systems in terms of what they do for their main purpose for uh, players and for GMs. But in terms of, as designers, it might be useful to come up with a... A uh, set of terms that kind of clarify 
why we are choosing to have certain uh, subsystems in a role-playing game. And uh, this came about in response to a comment on Twitter about our previous segment where we were talking about uh, uh, passions in Pendragon and whether drives in Gumshoe were essentially Gumshoe's version of passions. And my response was, no, these are uh, these serve different purposes. And I started making up terms, as I am wont to do, uh, in that uh, the passions in Pendragon strike me as a featured rule, which would be a, a rule that is there in order to, for you to interact with it and to take center stage during play, that that's sort of the coming to interact with that uh, rule and maybe one or two other sort of key featured rules that relate to it is the whole point of playing that game and not some other game. And so uh, if a rule system is famous for a rule, as Pendragon is for its passions system, which is for those who are not conversant with it, is uh, a series of character traits that uh, you uh, commit to uh, following in certain ways, and those character traits relate to the rules of chivalry, so that helps you to get into the mindset of a medieval knight, which is very different than our own and very different than a murder hobo. So when you sit down to play Pendragon, assuming you're familiar with it, you know you're going to be playing the passion system. Um, and so I would call that a, a featured rule. Can you think of other things that might uh, also be examples of featured rules? I, I think if you're if we're looking at the featured rules defined such that if you don't use them, you're not playing the game. And obviously you could be playing the game super differently than the designer intended. But let's just say for our for our purposes that if you're not using the featured rules, that's when you've stopped playing the game qua game. So I would say... For example, the sanity rules in Call of Cthulhu are classically featured rules because they're the rules that make Call of Cthulhu different from uh, RuneQuest with machine guns, right? That they yes. are the things that pull you into that setting, pull you into that game system, and they're a fundamental engagement of the player character with the universe and of the player with the universe via their player character. Um, you could say, for example, that uh, armor class is a featured rule of Dungeons & Dragons because, again, it's... Uh, certainly back in the old days when it was Thacko, armor class was like fundamental to your character. It's less so now, but it's still, I would say, a featured rule of, of D&D in a way that maybe um, psionics rules are not. Right. Or character classes and the differences between character right. classes are. Yeah. And also a long progression arc is uh, a featured rule of D&D. It assumes that you're going to play a bunch and that you're going to go up in levels over time. Humanity and vampire, which is uh, grows out of uh, sanity in uh, Call of Cthulhu is another featured rule, uh, and uh, also the way that cults worked in RuneQuest, where your character progresses according to the uh, religious sect that they choose to uh, belong to or the god that they choose to emulate. Those are all uh, featured rules. Drives in Gumshoe, uh, which are basically the you select from a menu depending on, on the game, and not all Gumshoe games require drives. But the ones that do are there in order to have the character choose to do things, or more aptly, the player agree to sign on that their character is going to do things that are in character for that genre, but that most people wouldn't do. And that's why the drives mostly appear in the Esoterrorist and Trail of Cthulhu and the other horror games, and that is to provide an answer to the scene that people always want to play out of, well, why am I going to go down into the ghoul crypt. Well, why shouldn't I call the cops or, or go home? Look at that and, int stat. Why am I in a ghoul crypt? <laughs> exactly. And 
just as it is the job of the horror writer to quickly motivate the character to go down uh, into the ghoul crypt, the scenario doesn't work if you don't, as the player, supply your motivation for, for doing that. So you might uh, have a discussion about it, but at the end of that discussion, you go to your drive and explain why you're doing that and why it makes sense for you to go to, into the ghoul crypt instead of doing the sensible thing. Um, now, that is something that I would refer to as a uh, not a featured rule, because you can play Trail of Cthulhu session after session and never actually have to explicitly evoke your drives, and especially not evoke the little mechanical penalty that it describes if you don't follow your drive, because the very process of having the player commit to one of those drives is enough to do the job required by that rule, which is just to make sure that a dysfunctional thing doesn't happen. The dysfunctional thing being, well, I'm not going down in the crypt. So I would describe that rule as a backstop rule. Uh, that's in there to, uh, it's almost sort of the inverse of a featured rule, where it's to uh, stop something that isn't like the play style you're looking for from happening. And if it never comes into play, you are doing it right. In many, for many groups playing Hillfolk drama system, there uh, a lot of those rules too function as backstop rules that they just kind of melt away. And you, uh, if you find that you need them, you use them. But just their very presence shapes the way play works and creates that feeling and structure of a drama system setting. And that sort of uh, gives you a, a question of you know, are the is the exchange of drama tokens a featured rule? Or is it a backstop rule? Is it just something that uh, people, uh, it, it gets you thinking in the way of having an, a, a grantor and a petitioner in each scene. And then uh, once you start doing that, you just sort of naturally fall into it. I would argue that it is a featured rule because you do still refer to it at the end of every scene and it sort of continues to remind you of what it is that you're doing. And it's the mechanical economy of the game. Yeah. Those tokens, right? Exactly. So I, I'm pretty sure you, you can't, relegate those. I would say if you're looking for the backstop rule in drama system, it's the entire procedural rule system. Yes. Right. Absolutely. That, well, if you're going to have to do something interesting, I suppose we have to have a system for it. You losers. But you know, we, you, we wouldn't you really rather talk it out in, our, in a room? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Or, or in the case of, uh, and procedural rules in drama system come into play when the characters want to do something external, like, you know, storm the castle and, uh, capture the people inside and a lot of the times in there you just go does anyone object to just cutting to after you've stormed the castle does it is anyone opposed to the castle being stormed and you look around the room and if no one is you just move on and you uh, frame the scenes after that has happened and uh the, the only way it could uh, the drama tokens could possibly be a backstop is in some groups uh mine for example people almost never use the force rule so they never they collect the tokens uh, which in my game are now physically present as a pile of plastic mole rats. You sort of pile them up and you see them there and you see the power dynamic shifting, but it's sort of a point of honor with the group to never actually force anybody to do anything with them. So that um, so, sort of illustrates that, uh, you know, even in a, uh, within a rule set, depending on the play style of an individual group, some things might be more featured than others, but it's still, it's still coming into play. It's still a big part of the system. I mean, we've, we've all heard, we've all heard people who say, I had the greatest Call of Cthulhu session, or I had the greatest D&D &D session, or I had the greatest X role-playing game session, and we only rolled the dice once. 
right? Yes. Because, and, and that's that example where, yeah, the mechanics are still core. They're still featured rules, but because you were into the act role playing activity, you wound up never having to even get to the featured rules because you were doing the thing the featured rules are meant to allow already. Right. I mean, so you can easily imagine a, a given gamer group saying, well, they're all kind of backstop rules for us because we get together and we basically do a, a really great tabletop free form. And then every now and again, someone says, should there be a car chase? And we roll a couple of dice and then yes, that, oh, what a great car chase that was. And then we move back into our, into our full on improvisational collaborative storytelling mode. And that, you know, that I, I think it's important to keep in mind that. Uh, we can only speak to the rules as designers. Once it gets out to the magical world of play, I am sure there are tons of people who have had a great time playing Call of Cthulhu with no sanity rules. Uh, they are not necessarily playing Call of Cthulhu as Sandy or even I or even most people would understand it. But that's not to like say their game is illegitimate because they're not using a featured rule. It's just to say that they're getting to the part where they make up stories together and have fun and have weird stuff happen without a lot of um, uh, a lot of messy mechanical interference. Right. And uh, other backstop rules are often present as just sort of mechanical limitations on things, and they often are things that you have to install after uh, playtesting. So, for example, the idea in uh, first edition Advanced Dungeons & Dragons that you lose a ton of experience points if you change your alignment is clearly a backstop rule that came about when... Uh, people chose alignments and then they decided to just completely disregard them. Right. And uh, alignment has become less of a featured rule in uh, D&D as the editions uh, have moved on. Uh, but uh, certainly in the uh, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, it was meant to be a big part of play. And so uh, that would be the, that penalty is another example of something to uh, stop people from basically a lot of backstop rules are there to enforce for that one person in the group to uh, obey the spirit of the rules uh, rather than just the explicit rules because there's always you know especially when you're younger there are rules lawyers who go well that it's implied but it's not stated so i'm going to ignore it so mm -hmm. backstop rules are often there to contain the efforts of uh, rules lawyers um so ken can you think of other uh we haven't there are more rules in a uh, role-playing game than just featured or backstop rules. Can you uh, think of a, uh, another category that you'd like to slap a uh, term onto? I would say that uh, there are special case rules, uh, and these are rules that, while they do not necessarily speak to the constant core activity of the game or characterize it in the way that passions or sanity do, but they apply to a set of circumstances that may well occur during a game and you need rules for them. And at that point, they would sort of move into featured rules, depending on how uh, idiosyncratic they are, perhaps. But uh, I, the example would be the chase mechanic in Nice Black Agents, right? You're not going to be doing car chases mostly. Um, and even when you are, you may not want to break out the whole thriller chase mechanics, but they're there for a specific type of play that the game is meant to uh, include. And another example would be the psionics rules from Dungeons and Dragons 
or um, in, in many games, just the magic system is a special case rule that, yeah, mostly it'll be sword fighting, but every now and again, someone's going to summon a demon and this is how you do it, right? Right. Uh, the section on how grenades work mm-hmm. yes. is uh, always a special case rule, unless there's a game where you uh, fight <laughs> entirely with grenades, where every conflict is a Steve's grenade. Steve's dad, fight. the role-playing game. Yes. <laughs> yeah. In which case, you're, you've, uh, you're emulating a genre that does not exist. Um, or, you know, you've made grenades too powerful, perhaps right. realistically powerful. Um, and, uh, yeah, and I sometimes think of those as edge case rules or blue moon rules. And they're kind of a challenge when you're designing because you're often trying to keep the rule set stripped down, but then there's a demand from players to know, you know, how do grenades work? Um, uh, attacking multiple opponents is often something that, uh, people want to know whether it works and how it works or stealth is, is often, uh, it's sort of more of a staple of most adventure genres. So, um, Maybe we want to give that a, a, a different uh, term. Well, the thing is that, that that stealth usually falls under the under the category of you know not even featured rules, but your base rules because right. it's usually just a skill rule, staple rules, right? right Something yeah. that you are adding to your rule set that is uh, you're already just taking a well known element from the forty year corpus of role playing game design and putting it in your game because it makes sense to do so. There's no reason not to do it that way. And it has that legacy effect. Uh, so, you know, there aren't, uh, there are hundreds and there are thousands of different role-playing games at this point, but there aren't a hundred or a thousand different ways to do how people are injured. There's a couple, there's, uh, hit points, there's wound tracks, uh, which are basically, you have five hit points. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, I would ar- argue that those are staple rules that you're just, uh, you know, they're, you're taking the prefab elements, the drywall uh, that people always use to build houses. You know, they're, these are the, the basic elements, skill roles, uh, having skills, uh, attributes where those exist. Uh, and although uh, they're not a staple in that you always have to have them in every game in order to have a role-playing game. For example, Gumshoe and almost none of my games, in fact, uh, have attributes, uh, character stats, measure strength and constitution and so forth. But there's still a staple rule. And if you put that in your game, anyone who's familiar with role-playing games will immediately see what that is, understand it, and then look for your variation on it, if any. Yeah. And I think that we should, we, we can identify a difference between edge case rules, which as the name implies, uh, operate when the staple rules or even the featured rules are getting around to the edges of what they're meant to model grenades, uh, multiple opponents, things like that. Unless again, you're talking about something like feng shui where multiple opponents are most of the point. Um, but that's different from a, uh, special case rule or, or a situational set of rules that come in when you're doing a different activity, but one that the genre is still intended to model. And I would include, for example, vehicle construction and traveler. That's, uh, that's a, it's not an edge case. You know, you're going to wind up constructing a vehicle every now and again, but you're not doing it all the damn time. And it's usually not a featured rule unless the game is so, has such a crazily awesome uh, vehicle construction rule that you can't imagine playing it without it. And I'm not sure that there is a game like that, but in, in a, in a dream world, there is maybe car wars is, is that, although car wars is b- barely a role playing game. Right. And I wouldn't want to borrow a term from video gaming, but that's sort of a side quest rule, right? It's yeah. something where you go off and you, uh, 
you do, you know, we have a session where several of the players make a car or uh, devise a ritual in the uh, library of magic. And so those rules are there to, I guess that they're sort of, uh, you know, special guest rules, right? Yeah. But just the way a special guest star on a TV s- series uh, comes on and takes a lot of attention for one or two episodes, your uh, special guest rule, your spotlight rule, I guess. Spotlight rule. Um, there we go. Is uh, a rule that uh, comes into play, dominates play for a little while, sort of turns the game into a different game for a little while for variety's sake. Uh, you know, your cattle drive rules in your Western game. You're not going to have a cattle drive every uh, episode, but when you do, yeah. the cattle drive rules are going to be in the spotlight or um, uh, mass combat rules in a fantasy game. Yeah. Um, and so uh, those are often the ones where you have to sit down and read that chapter that night before you play the scenario that has the spotlight rule in it. But when you do, it sort of creates a, a sub game within uh, the regular experience. Have we left any major uh, categories of why rules are uh, in there out? I guess there's just the there's the crunchy bits themselves, right? That they're a, a subunit of uh, it can be depending on the game. Your magic system could be the featured part of the game, or it could be sort of a, a sideline element. But either way, whatever the components are that make that up, the the spells are the, the crunchy bits that then contribute toward that. And that as a designer, there may, there's maybe just as much work that goes into designing a really great spell than designs the overall featured system or uh, spotlight system that you uh, create to have those spells operate in. I, I think that you can think of those as like ammunition, right? Because spells, monsters, uh, the skill list to an extent, all of that is, uh, you know, the, the gun is going to shoot you know, when you pull the trigger, depending on what you load it with is what the effect is going to be. So it, you, you know, it might be loaded with hollow points. It might be loaded with uh, armor penetrating ammo. It might be uh, frac- uh, frangible ammo, whatever. It, it's going to come out of the gun and do something different. And so, but the act of loading a bunch of them in is the act. I think that as a designer, it feels like, and maybe as a consumer, it feels like to read is look at this big list of things that uh, can go off in my game. And so, Spells, monsters, uh, skills, any, uh, you know, a list of pre-made vehicles even become sort of uh, ammunition rules, right? Uh, the only re- reason I wouldn't call them ammunition rules is because your game you actually have also rules have for ammunition, ammunition rules. Right, yeah. <laughs> so I would go Ordnance the, rules. No yeah, one ever uses the word ordinance. or consumables or uh, uh, something else. Um, so I'm not currently thinking of anything else, uh, any other category, but I'm sure... Uh, those other categories exist. and uh, But anyway, I think this is sort of an interesting uh, starting point for a sort of a common vocabulary of uh, why we include certain rules in our game and why we relegate certain others to a supplement and why we exclude certain others altogether. And so once we've got a starting point, it's also an end point of uh, this particular hut and the uh, beginning of a commercial. And at the other side of the commercial, another hut and or segment. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. 
Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken? Unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational, collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the Director's Handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters, are both available at the Pelgrain website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin, it's theirs. The Tippecanoe and the Tyler 2 alert us to the fact that we are once more in the razzle-dazzle of the politics hut. And uh, this hut is part of our continuing coverage of the American presidential election. Uh, our last exciting installment asked the question, is Donald Trump the Rob Ford of the Republican Party? And the answer, it has turned out, is yes, because he came up the middle till there wasn't a middle anymore and uh, surged the rest of the way to... Uh, this stage of victory and is now the nominee, the presumptive, uh, presumptive nominee. nominee, but you know, it's yes, a yes. <laughs> it's a pretty good presumption. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd say that the presumption is very high. Barring meteors or miracles. So, so I think there's a question coming to mind to politics hut aficionados. And that is, uh, they want to know what you think about this. Ken, Ken, what has happened to your party? I, I don't know. And I'm not sure anyone knows. Uh, the, the thing to keep in mind is that, Everyone who has spoken authoritatively about this election has pretty much been wrong. So, and that includes me, although I did say there wouldn't be a brokered convention. And for a while there, it looked like I was going to have a perfect, um, uh, wrong record. But it, but again, I think you, not, you were, you were right before you were, you were right after you were wrong. I was so right after being that's, wrong. That's better than Bill Crystal. Um, the question is, is uh, Trumpism a fleeting one man band phenomenon? Uh, he has been compared to the mule, uh, from the foundation trilogy, the figure that emerges and confounds all the quantifiable, uh, people. But when he's gone, it goes back to good old Harry Seldon and back to good old psychohistory. Or is there a Trumpist movement that will uh, alter the Republican Party into something more like the nationalist parties in Europe, like uh, the uh, Marine Le Pen's party in France or the Alliance Fuhr, whatever it is, in Germany? The nationalists are in charge in Hungary. Many, many nationalist parties are, are rising up in Europe. And so the question is, is America going to just sort of Europeanify and get a nationalist party to go with its uh, socialist party, or is it just going to um, uh, trundle along being America the way that it normally does? And 
your answer to that question, a lot of it depends on how much Trump you saw in the Republican Party operate Trump versus how much you see in the Republican Party post Trump. And I think that the, uh, the, uh, in my view, the only way that Trumpism becomes a permanent feature of the Republican Party as to, as opposed to a, a weird aberration is if he wins. And then my party is indeed screwed completely because uh, the Republican Party, God knows, is just as good at truckling to power as every other organization in the world is and better than some. So I would say that if Trump wins, which, again, every smart prediction of the of the election says he's not going to. But again, every smart prediction of the election said he wasn't going to get the nomination. So there you go. If he wins, the Republican Party will almost have no choice but to organize itself around the person of Donald Trump because he will be the president. And then if you have a president of your party, it takes quite a degree of uh, bullheadedness to keep your nose out of that particular trough. Um, Jimmy Carter managed not to unify the Democratic Party around him, but he was an almost uniquely off-putting person, and they had Teddy Kennedy to rally around. Uh, the Republican Party does not have a Teddy Kennedy equivalent to keep us out of um, uh, the Trumpian harness. Right. Should Otherwise, that he would be exist. the nominee. Right, yes. At the moment. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> well, let me then, if, if you are uh, staying safely professing uh, your uh, actual uncertainty, uh, let me try and nail things down by as a, not even not just Republican, but not an American, of my sense of what uh, happened. And that is that I think that there has uh, been a, uh, a realignment within the party because the donor and organizational class has learned that their base is not actually particularly interested in their issues anymore. Their issues being fiscal conservatism and uh, low tax rates, especially for uh, people with the money to donate large amounts of uh, money to political campaigns. And that it turns out that the rank and file voter uh, has been responding to many decades now to the content of uh, talk radio especially, and also Fox News, but really talk radio. And that's, again, where the uh, Ford comparison comes in, because Ford was definitely hitting the right-of-center talk radio points in a very different place, uh, Toronto rather than America. Um, and so uh, I don't know if that's something that can be put back together, because even if Trump loses, I think that what you will get is somebody who... Someone on Twitter said that uh, this will spark the rise of the chaos Muppets. And if I'd only stopped to write down who it was when this phrase uh, burned itself into my brain, but basically people who uh, have no more respect for the apple cart than Ford or Trump, but perhaps uh, are a somewhat more polished version of that uh, than, uh, than Trump is. So that even if he loses, I think there are still going to be people who continue to uh, activate that uh, appetite among rank and file Republican voters for a more nationalist, uh, nativistic, particularly uh, ethno-nationalist uh, set of cultural responses and animosities. And uh, I think that is uh, where you're going to have a big uh, fission. I'm not sure whether it's possible anymore now that the two-party system is so entrenched for the Republican Party to literally split in two, but I don't know how you're going to 
knit the the populists and the uh, entrepreneurs back together again? Well, I mean, that's the that's the great question. And again, I mean, the the possibility that you adduce is the same thing that happened with Goldwater in 64 when he lost dramatically. And in 1980, a better Goldwater got elected. And so in 1972, McGovern uh, went into the wood chipper. But in 19 rather in 2008, a better McGovern got elected. And so one can imagine per your argument that Trump speaks to a deeper core within the Republican party, the talk radio, uh, and we might as well say it white nationalist, uh, voter within the Republican party that a more plausible, a better, uh, Trump will come along in 20 odd years. And then that will be the new, uh, unifier of, of the, of the brand. And the question being, does the Republican Party spend those 20 years in complete exile as the Democratic Party did after they blew up their party in 1896? Or does the Republican Party, like it did after McGovern, or rather after um, uh, uh, Goldwater, come back and nominate, okay, we're done with that craziness. Let's nominate a, a, a normal centrist who we understand like Richard Nixon. And obviously that turns out, you know, Differently well for differently people, but the broad goal of, um, restoring party unity may dictate a unified candidate, even though the, the seeds of, of some better Trump or Trumpism, uh, writ large are, are festering away within a sub organization. And the question there is, has Trump left an organization that can continue Trumpism without him? And that, I think, is the difference between Trump and Goldwater and between Trump and McGovern. Goldwater and McGovern both had enormous political organizations behind them as well as being um, uh, vocal embodiments of a heretofore ignored wing of their party. And I don't know that Trump has that mechanism behind him. Now, the, the great danger, of course, is that uh, Paul Manafort or some equally um, uh, soulless uh, Republican says, oh, look. I can build a post-Trump movement out of these um, uh, these Trump voters, and then in you know twenty twenty four or whenever we can have a better Trump run and be uh, king, and that will be the great question. But at this moment, looking at the Republican Party, Trump's voters are primarily drawn, or at least to a large extent drawn, from people who had previously completely checked out of partisan politics. The, the, the people who, when it came down to it, they would look up and say, oh, it looks like Romney's going to win. I guess I'll vote for Romney because he's better than those rotten Democrats. Because right. And I've... what they checked out of was primary. Right, yeah. Um, it's it's not that, that uh, Trump is bringing in new voters, as he claims, but that he got a bunch of people who normally would wait for the general and vote for the Republican excited earlier in order to uh, you know, mark down their choice for someone who was way different than any of the Republicans that they have uh, voted for, uh, for, you know, 20, 30 years. Right. Yeah. Or, you know, way different than ordinary humans. And then the question is, you know, there's, um, uh, there are perfectly plausible other Trumps out there who are, you know, less terrible than Trump. And you, and we can all, I mean, Mark Cuban, for example, has been approached by apparently, um, uh, Bill Crystal or somebody to run on a, as a third party conservative because they think, oh, loudmouth businessman, he can defeat Trump in his own, uh, metier. <laughs> and Mark Cuban, while also unqualified to be president, is 
far less hilariously unqualified to be president than Donald Trump. And you could see that being a more plausible argument, you know, after eight years of Hillary, for example. Um, and it's less plausible, certainly to Mark Cuban now, but you can, you can imagine a more plausible Trump figure, uh, being built up out of a, uh, you know, the, the post Trump, um, organization and the desire for party unity. And that's the, the great question that can, can those currents, be organized or will those currents just flow back into the land and just sort of go along with a more nationalist, but not white nationalist or more nationalist, but not nativist or more anti-immigration, but in all other ways, identical Republican, i.e. Ted Cruz, when he runs again in uh, 2020. Right. One of the challenges of, you know, the positing a um, more electable Trump later on is that the current set of cultural impulses have to be broadened beyond uh, white nationalism because uh, <laughs> there's that's a minority. <laughs> that's, that's a you know non non college uh, uh, whites are not increasing as a percentage of the population, and that's part of you know why uh, that group is so activated is because they're uh, starting to see their their kind of assumptions of how America and the world works uh, come into question. But Rob Ford certainly demonstrated. That you could be clearly personally a racist <laughs> who used racist epithets, especially when uh, uh, under the influence, yet still attract. Well, who among us? Who among us hasn't uh, used racial epithets while on crack, Robin? I mean, come on, that's what crack is for. Oh, well, there you go. Uh, that's a selling point if ever heard one. But still, he had uh, big support uh, across the. Uh, ethnic board here in Toronto, yeah, right? That right. there's a, a cultural profile, that the uh, populist impulse, you know, the uh, desire to say, well, I'm not politically correct, uh, is often uh, not an explicitly uh, racist uh, statement, oddly enough, although it so often is, uh, but that, you know, people, uh, you know, who are first generation immigrants from all around the world can adopt that stance as well and relate to it and feel a, uh, a connection to it. So, you know, if American Chaos Muppets study the Rob Ford phenomenon, perhaps they could find a way to, uh, you know, build that into something with a kind of uh, demographic uh, punch. But even in the short term, though, um, you're going to see uh, all sorts of Republican elected officials who, as uh, you know, late ago as two weeks, were anathematizing Donald as the uh, second coming of, of the devil are now, you know, falling into line because their short-term political uh, ambitions depend on them doing that. And a certain number of them, I think, are going to feel liberated by not having to stick to the Paul Ryan orthodoxy, which, of course, is not actually widely popular outside of the, you know, band of people that it benefits. And I think part of also what has happened is that uh, you know, non-college whites realized that nothing much tr trickled down to them over the last, uh, you know, since the, the Reagan era. Or if it did, there have been other worse countervailing forces that have uh, put them in a tougher spot. And so uh, if the uh, entrepreneurial organizational wing wants to reassert itself, it has to make a different pitch than the one that they've been making, because that current pitch, I think, got blown up by Trump. And I don't think that gets put back together with without any changes either no I'm, I'm pretty sure that we're not going to see the marco rubio platform be the republican platform 
uh, going forward just because it's demonstrably not appealing to Republican uh, potential primary voters anymore. Uh, I think that almost regardless, you're going to see some elements of things that Trump talked about wind up in the uh, Republican Party uh, coalition going forward, assuming that there is one. Um, the question, I mean, the, the, the $100,000 question turns out to be immigration because that's something that the big business part of the Republican Party really, really wants because it likes cheap labor. And that's something that the, uh, uh, again, to the non-college white part of the Republican Party really doesn't want because it competes with them directly for jobs. And, uh, they can look around their towns and they say, well, look at that. All the jobs went away after we voted for all that, uh, free trade. I wonder if there's a connection. And it is very hard to make a pragmatic case for free trade in a town where the factory went away to Mexico as a, and you can say, look, you're spending much less money on everything at Walmart because we have free trade. And they're like, I'd also like to have a job to get yeah. the money that I'm not spending. But the macro economy is better. Well, yes, my right. macro economy yeah. is, uh, it's not so much better is in trouble. And I think the Republican party is going to have to appeal to that. And I think that the interesting thing is that the sort of consensus, uh, and it's, uh, the, the term is usually used neoliberalism, but although I think that there's a great deal more neo and a great deal less liberal in it, but the consensus neoliberal policy of both Democrats and Republicans is being questioned on both sides of the aisle, which is why Bernie Sanders, who is, if anything, an even less plausible candidate than Donald Trump, is basically neck and neck in terms of elected delegates with Hillary Clinton. And that is an argument that the Democratic Party um, has 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 uh is is one crazy person shy of doing the exact same thing and well, he's not neck and neck because he would have to capture some ungodly percentage of the remaining delegates to to win but yeah. the, the broader point is that uh you know that the disaffection with unalloyed free trade without any uh you know countermeasures to help the people who are uh, dislocated by it is something that definitely crosses uh, party lines, but is, uh, a concern on, uh, you know, the, the wings mm -hmm. of, of both of those, uh, parties. And, and, and at least when he started running, I haven't kept track, but when he started running, Bernie Sanders was also anti-immigration. He was a closed borders Democrat, which is something I didn't even know there still was one of. And I guess you have to start as a socialist to be one, but he, uh, he may or may not have changed over the course of the campaign. But again, that's, that, that's a big part of where he's getting a lot of those votes. It's not right. all anti-globalism is, is, uh, uh, by definition, not about bringing in uh, a flood of uh, labor that will underbid uh, the people who are already living in your country. Right. Yeah. So there's a lot of there's a lot of um, of that, you know, it, uh, interest all over America in the same way that the populists were a big movement in America in the 1880s, 1870s, 1890s. And eventually uh, the populists kind of took over the Democratic Party or the Democratic Party co-opted the populists, depending on who you read. And that got mostly soaked up there. But you had populist Republicans like, for example, Teddy Roosevelt. And so the result being that even if Trumpism is mostly soaked up by the Republican Party, you're going to have Trumpist Democrats or anti-globalist Democrats or nativist Democrats or nationalist Democrats or however you want to right. uh, identify them. It's an them. interesting irony because although there might be a shared set of policy goals, the uh, cultural affectations of the two sides are uh, defined pretty much against each other. So yeah. you've got to find a way to get the uh, guy who has, uh, you know, truck nuts on his pickup and the uh, tie-dyed guys playing hacky sack to 
suddenly uh, talk to each other and uh, find out that they have common cause. And I think if there's one thing that we're learning about uh, politics today, it's that the cultural identification comes first and the set of policy solutions to the problems uh, often takes a backseat. And I think that's why we're going to see, you know, the number of Republicans who don't vote for Trump yourself included, is is going to be surprisingly small, that people out of partisanship are going to uh, come oh, yeah. to Trump. He's, he's going he's gonna to coalesce probably at least 85% of the Republican vote, and I think Romney got about 90, so it's not going to be outside the realm of, uh, maybe it was 93, but it's not going to be that far from a normal Republican uh, candidate in terms of coalescing people who vote for Trump. Now, it would be interesting if Trump were running against a uh, good politician like Obama. Yeah. Right. I mean, he is running against one of the worst politicians and one of the most viscerally hated people in America. The only person with worse negatives than Hillary is Trump. So congratulations, party. Well done. She, she, that, that, that uh, genie lamp that she <laughs> right. was uh, sent in the mail has really been working overtime. In another, in another campaign, you could imagine that the coalesce around Trump number would drop uh, precipitously if he were running against someone who was not equally uh, despised and certainly viscerally so on the right side of the aisle. And and if he were running against, you know, Jim Webb or the, the what's his name? Um, O'Malley from Maryland, right? If the, if the Democrats had, for whatever reason, um, uh, uh, nominated Martin O'Malley, I don't think you get an 85% coalition around Trump. I think it goes down to the 70s. I think you might have to say, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. The, those aren't the examples I would pick of, of uh, people who are better than than uh, Hillary at running for president, but, but no, the, he's the, obviously the greater re- point. He would, he would still have run a feckless campaign, but you would not look at Martin O'Malley and have 25 years of, of uh, going up your spine the way that Republicans do with Hillary. But in a uh, country that is very closely divided and very polarized, uh, Trump losing even the, uh, you know, if Ken's comprise 5% of the population who would normally vote Republican, that is the difference between uh, winning and losing. So, wh- what are the odds, Ken, of uh, you know, with uh, either with Trump uh, losing, but a Trumpist, uh, uh, others trying to uh, push the Trump buttons more skillfully, or Hammer uh, uh, for Fend Trump winning? Uh, what are the odds you would say that you're going to be able to uh, vote? for the next Republican presidential candidate. Well, since I think it's pretty clear the next Republican presidential candidate is either going to be Ted Cruz or is going to be whoever inherits his machine, I will probably vote for them quite happily. But if we assume the plausible Trump uh, and that they are still as, uh, let's say, comfortable with uh, white nationalist support as Trump seems to be, then who can say? I don't think that I, I, I would like to believe, and I may be being historically naive here, that this is a sort of a last gasp moment for the white nationalist in American politics. Now, I may be wrong. And if the Republican Party becomes, if, if white nationalists become a, uh, visible part of our coalition, then yeah, I may have to look into, um, uh, voting libertarian forever. 
but um, because why not vote for crazy people? Um, <laughs> well, you're in Chicago. You yes. can afford no, to that's, throw your that's vote the away. Great, that's the great li- uh, um, uh, liberty that I have is living in the safest, uh, one of the safest states in the union for uh, for one side or the other. I can vote third party without ever damaging anything. So if you're in Arizona, would you vote for Hillary? If I were in Arizona, I would. Uh, I think Arizona is still pretty, uh, pretty safe. Uh, okay, pick, pick a purple state. But if I'm in Ohio... If I'm in Ohio, do I vote for Hillary? If I'm in Ohio, um, I'll tell you what, my Ohio listening friends, I will happily agree with you, whoever you're voting against. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so I would, in Ohio, very probably vote against Hillary on the gamble that while Trump would be disastrous for the party, Hillary would be disastrous, more disastrous for the country. Trump will also be disastrous for the country. Let us not short sell that. But the degree and kind of the disaster, you know, choose the form of the destructor. I would probably choose the oranger form of the destructor if I were in Ohio, but thank God I'm not. So, uh, but again, it would be a vote against Hillary, not a vote for Trump. And I certainly assume that a great many people on both sides of the aisle will be voting just that way. Uh, well, I think that uh, tells us something about the strength of partisanship right there. And uh, once we've affirmed that lesson, we can uh, move on to an even stronger tougher, hopefully less orange, hut. What happens when you add a hefty dollop of Babylon to your urban fantasy? What doesn't happen? Babylon is the template on which... That sounds fa- fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not biologically related. But related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagelm. Ask for Askfagelm by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This show also made possible by generous patrons precisely like Ben Dilworth, Benjamin Blanding, Graham Wills, Jeremy Forbang, and Phil Bailey. Be featured, never a backstop, by joining their illustrious ranks at patreon.com slash Ken and Robin. From one side and the other, from outside, from inside, from all sides, come an endless clamor of emails, petitions, and mostly posts on our Patreon requesting that Robin and I, that Ken and Robin, tell me more. Yes, in fact, only posts on the Patreon count toward tell me more. 
Although um, we like to see all the other petitions as well, just because. Right. So that's those us. of you enjoying our new uh, weekly Ken and Robin consume media text feature, uh, if you are a Patreon backer, you can let us know on that Patreon post which of the many, many TV shows, movies, books, uh, occasionally even uh, alcoholic uh, beverages or cooking ingredients we experience and describe there, which you would like us to expand beyond our capsule review uh, status. And the first one, Ken, is uh, one that uh, I outsourced the job of knowing that this was not worth seeing to you and to others. Yes. Well, well done. Yes. Uh, I can trust <laughs> that certain things will be true without directly experiencing them. And one of those is uh, Zack Snyder superhero movies where I saw the previous one and only saw that one long afterwards on uh, premium uh, cable just to see just how uh, much I didn't like it. And guess what? I didn't like it. Yeah, go figure. Who knew? You, however, um, went out and braved what uh, expectations might have uh, suggested against and went to uh, Superman v. Batman. Uh, Batman what is v. it? Superman. Rise of Justice or the, the furrowed brows, the furrowing? <laughs> it was... Um, uh, uh... I don't care. Dawn um, of Justice. No, no one cares what it was. The glowering. The 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 the, the tiresome uh, retread of a thirty year old comic book. Uh, Batman versus Superman: The Dawn of Justice, directed by Zack Snyder, and I, and you know, uh, often you put that in quotes, but this, by God, was directed by Zack Snyder right into a ditch. Um, I went and saw it for three reasons. First of all, because the local theater in my neighborhood, the Hyde Park Theater, deserves my patronage. They they do cheap seats. They sell liquor in the theater. They um uh they're they're delightful people, and it's it's fun to walk uh, down the block to a movie as opposed to get on the bus. So that's one reason. Second reason is I have friends who, like myself, are occasionally vulnerable to the smell this milk and tell us if it's gone bad uh, impulse. <laughs> and uh, three, I'd heard that while the movie in general was a uh, dumpster fire, there were bits in it that were worth seeing, uh, specifically Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman, and that the score was good. And I thought, well, uh, for given the other two circumstances, let's go see how good Gal Gadot is as Wonder Woman. Let's go listen to the score. Let's see if there's any other... Uh, crystals we can rake from the dung heap. And it turns out, uh, uh, Ben Affleck's performance as Batman was sort of, or not as Batman, his performance as Bruce Wayne was one of those crystals, which I had not expected to be true. And given a better director, uh, even with the same noxious script, the movie could possibly have been better if, uh, Superman, for example, had ever been, you know, Superman-like. Uh, that would have been a nice change, but there were. Th so, there what were... would you distinguish as the things that a better director could have done with the same script? with the same script? Uh, first of all, given Henry Cavill a uh, better direction, make Superman a generally upbeat redeemer as opposed to a downbeat redeemer. Um, make him uh, Jesus instead of Thor, basically, and uh, then his fall into fighting Batman becomes a tragic arc as opposed to a groaning inevitability. Likewise, a, a better director could have, I don't know, shot the fight scene to make any damn sense. That would have also helped. The The big super fight is ridiculously choreographed, and the big super fight at the end, where they fight Doomsday, is even more ridiculously choreographed. Right. And the one good thing about Man of Steel is the the superhero fight asterisks not all the people in the buildings being murdered, but yes, the, right. just the, the physicality of that. So maybe uh, his second... Uh, unit director was uh, 
not the same guy yeah. or hadn't had his coffee I this mean, time. The physicality of the part where Batman and Superman are fighting is is perfectly good. It's the it's the geography of the fight that is um ill established and that it literally becomes nonsense in, in the uh, in the big fight against Doomsday at the end where it's like, Hey, Superman, why don't you dive into the water and get the Kryptonite spear while I Batman hold off Doomsday? I mean, that is that's literally what happens in the movie and it is God awfully stupid. So every director needs to be sat down with all of John Woo's Hong Kong movies and see just the technique he uses to introduce the geography of the scene before the fight breaks out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there just needs to be a great deal of that, and especially since the geography is in theory a big part of what of how the fight is supposed to play out in Batman versus Superman, which it does not. Uh, the general notion of doing uh, the DC universe as a Christianized Norse myth. Uh, I think is completely legitimate. I think that there's and every sort of way to in- interpret the DC universe can be, can be done well. And obviously Frank Miller did Batman versus Superman. Well, when he did the fight in the dark Knight way back in the while, but the differential between the two of them is really in the execution and the, uh, and a lot of the surrounding um, story arc. I also would have kept perhaps Brian Cranston as Lex Luthor and not cast Jesse Eisenberg. Although the notion of Lex Luthor as an annoying tech wonderkind is interesting. And we could all pretend that uh, Lex Luthor is Mark Zuckerberg from the social network if we wanted to, which was delightful. That's one of those things that sounded great in the pitch meeting. Yeah. But then when you try to execute it. Well, then you need a better script is what you need. Um, The the, the broader um, uh, notion, though, of these sort of Olympian gods come down onto Earth and having their Trojan War amongst us is a great one. And it could have been done well. And I think that the that the way that uh, it was done is just uh, the the sort of standard litany of Zack Snyder ham-fistedness, not a flaw with the notion of Superman and Batman meet and they fight. Because as Marvel Comics have been proving since 1944, superheroes who fight when they first meet is interesting and entertaining. And as indeed was proven not a couple of months later by uh, the Russo brothers, uh, fighting superheroes can be awesome. So it's not the it's, the problem is not Batman versus Superman. The problem is the, the way and the structure and and the and the direction. So I think people wanted to hear a little bit more about the idea that they're Christianizing Norse mythology. So how how do you expand that thought a bit? Well, the the uh, Norse mythology comes to us entirely through Christian sources, first of all, except for rune stones, which are not narratives. Um, but all of the all of the Eddas are written by Christians, and so. The notion of Ragnarok, the notion of the saving war at the end and the redemption uh, of Thor sacrificing himself, all of those things are already written with a Christian gloss on them. So when you take something like that and you add to it a savior narrative, which is the narrative of Superman, you are creating a, and it's not the narrative, obviously, that Siegel and Shuster wrote into Superman, but it's the one that everyone has written in since. Um, uh, of all religious persuasions, but the, um, but the, the savior narrative of Superman, you have a, 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 a more Christianized Ragnarok in which the, the, the gods are engaged in their, in their petty duels until the real end of the world comes about. And the real end of the world maybe comes about as a result of their petty duels, which is kind of the, the point, uh, to the extent there is one of the Eddas. But it will come in spite of their petty duels as well, which is the, what they get from the Norse. So the notion of 
these uh the, these larger than life figures and the ability of Bruce Wayne to build himself into a god is I think the interesting thing in this reading about Batman that he is capable by dint of the gifts given only to humans of confronting the gods on their own turf like when Achilles wounds uh Ares with his spear that's a you know that's a moment in the Trojan War and you have the similar moment in Batman versus Superman, you have the similar possible moment of Batman having risen into the place of the, of the round table of these sort of great immortals, uh, through nothing more than, you know, uh, you know, a billion dollars and, uh, uh, the second greatest scientific brain in the universe. So the, uh, so the story of, of, of mythic figures having their wars among mortals and the story of mortals rising to join them and Altering the uh, the outcome is again a a, a particularly sort of uh, a Christian viewpoint because again you can read Batman as an inverted Christ that instead of being God who becomes man he's man who becomes God and that then sets up your sort of ultimately thematic battle uh, between uh, Superman and Batman and and the way that they have to then sort of unify into a common gnosis and defeat true evil becomes your your final arc. The, it, it, that's where you leave the Norse behind, by the way. You, you don't have any of that in, in the Norse, but you can have, um, uh, that's the Christian half of it, right? Right. So, uh, Warner Brothers apparently has, uh, heard your complaints and others and, uh, <laughs> has recognized that what they want to have going forward is more of the tone of their various, uh, much better TV series. And so they have elevated Jeff Johns uh, along with... Uh, and when a, Jeff Johns being put in charge of something is good news, you know that you were in really bad hands before. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, and that was not a, a yes of endorsement. I don't have a, an opinion one way or the other. Um, and uh, so anyway, there are, there are uh, different hands in charge of the DC uh, movies going forward. And I think Ben Affleck has been made a, an executive producer on... Uh, yes. And uh, the other guy who's now head of the department that works on DC is uh, his is Affleck's producing partner. Right. Yeah. So it seems like, uh, Affleck and, and his producer and John's are in, and, uh, the previous Zack Snyder, uh, regime may be, uh, on the way back a bit. Um, so the next, uh, item people wanted to hear more about, I was recently, uh, reading some of the ghost stories of Ambrose Bierce, uh, as part of a unannounced project that I'm doing a bunch of research for. And he is, uh, I think it's kind of a, an important proto figure in the weird tale. And one of the reasons I would describe him as a proto figure rather than a full fledged ones is that his ghost stories are pretty much mostly vignettes. They're very short. Uh, they're kind of, uh, have a punchline. They revolve around an irony. And often the irony is that, uh, someone you think is alive is actually a ghost. And uh, as you kind of move through them, uh, the early ones are more almost sort of uh, Americana with a little spooky twist. And then uh, as he goes along, he begins to explore more horror imagery, if not full-fledged short story plotting. And so you get some really cool uh, images and ideas that you can take and nick and put into a... Uh, game scenario that has more of a structure to it. So, for example, in several of the stories, the alarming manifestation uh, that the living person experiences in the haunted place is they see 
corpses, often like a large number of corpses uh, rotting away, and uh, they're alarmed by that, and then they go back later, and of course they're not there. So that was something I was able to lift directly for last week's uh, Trail of Cthulhu uh, scenario. So there's definitely stuff in there uh, that's cool. One of the stories revolves around someone who goes into a haunted house and uh, uh, waits for things to happen, and instead of there being scary things inside the house, there's a crowd that uh, uh, gathers outside the house. He thinks because he's a newspaper man, and this has been announced at first that these are, are you know, just people coming to rubberneck, but they become more and more menacing and start, you know, finally it winds up with an image of them entering the house and kicking a severed head around as if it were a, 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 a soccer ball. And again, that's uh, an image that sticks with you longer than a lot of the other stories do. But basically, if you take beers and then add a bunch of Maupassant and uh, add them to the life experience of Robert W. Chambers, that's where Chambers' fiction uh, comes from. Right. And Bierce's uh, fiction comes from his own life experience, which was uh, as a heroic uh, Indiana lieutenant during the Civil War. And if you have gone through the Battle of Chickamauga, no horror fiction will ever unnerve you again, I strongly suspect. Yes, and there, there's uh, a lot <laughs> of the, the specter of the Civil War in there, and also the so a lot of the stories are set either in the South or refer to the Civil War, or they're in the, the West or the Mountain West. So they're um, also taking horror and reciting it in America, which is something that uh, Lovecraft and others uh, later pick up. You know, Poe is earlier than Bierce and is writing more fully fleshed out constructed stories, but he's usually doing so in a uh, gothic European context. So uh, this has uh, ghosts and cowboys in the same stories. Right. Um, did you have a specific uh, edition or collection of beers that you are recommending to uh, the good people? Uh, the one that I picked up uh, was called The Ghost Stories of Ambrose Bierce. Uh, but I'm sure there are, uh, there's another one that's like the ghost and supernatural stories of Ambrose Bierce. And I think that, you know, whatever collection you pick will have enough of them to give you the gist. Because also, they're not that different from each other. They're originally published in like little magazines and stuff. And mm -hmm. uh, he's one of many early short story. Well, not early short stories. He's one of the short story writers who does not necessarily benefit from uh, a single author anthology that you read all all in a row together just because they're... Uh, the techniques become uh, pretty easy to spot as you go along. They're, they're not that. The variety between them is not enormous. But certainly if you want to understand someone who is a very influential figure on uh, Chambers and Lovecraft and, and through them on the weird tale tradition, uh, it's, you know, they're easy to read, they're a fast read, and you'll uh, feel more grounded in the history of horror after you read them. And also, of course, Bierce dying in 1913 or disappearing da, 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 in 1913 means that he uh, is public domain. So you can go out onto your Gutenbergs or your uh, or your Kindles and find dirt cheap or free Ambrose Bierce to read and uh, enjoy all of Ambrose Bierce, not merely the ghost and horror stories. Right. And the final item that people wanted to hear more about was a book uh, that you read called The Burglar's Guide to the City. Uh, what's the author on that? The author on that is Jeff Manaugh, M-A-N-A-U-G-H. And he is the guy who does a building blog, B-L-D-G-B-L-O-G, which is a great blog full of uh, sort of architectural thought and architectural uh, weirdness and architectural whimsy. Um, and this book, likewise, is full of those things in that it argues basically that burglary is detournement 
or hacking of architecture, uh, that you, um, that burglars do not see buildings the same way that architects do, or that, uh, even most people do because they say, I'm not going to go through that door. There's probably an alarm on it. I'm going to go through the ceiling or the wall or the, f- uh, or tunnel through the floor. Right. Or do Does it any get into the way things. that, um, bank robbers prefer certain cities to certain other cities? I think they really like Los Angeles because of, uh, yeah, there's a very specific, uh, description of why Los Angeles is sort of was the bank robbers paradise in the nineties and aughts. And it's because, uh, so many banks, are so near freeway on ramps. And so the result is that you can rob a bank and be literally uh, miles from the scene in literally seconds if you, if you do it right. And that, and there's a lot of that uh, sort of the unique geography of Los Angeles and why it's sort of the, 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 the bank robber's friend. Uh, there's other cities that, you know, because they're built on, on sandy soil like Berlin, um, you get more tunnely bank robbers than you do in other cities that are built on bedrock like Manhattan. Uh, but he starts with a anecdote or a series of anecdotes about the greatest uh, burglar uh, in American history, George Leonidas Leslie, who was responsible for, I think, 80 percent of robberies in New York during his uh, heyday in the 1880s and uh, or 1870s, rather. And so uh, George Leonidas Leslie becomes sort of a um, what do I want to say. Uh, a, a totemic figure for Manog as, as he goes through the book. And he talks about how Leslie sort of creates the image of bank robbing that we have, as well as sort of creating the modern uh, skill set of bank robbing in the way that a lot of other arcane knowledge became professionalized during the Victorian era. And so this book basically is a how-to guide on how to create a casing the joint scene uh, for fiction or to have your uh, heist uh, thief characters uh, in a role-playing game, uh, be conversant with so that, uh, you know, you can describe the architecture of a place to characters who are experienced burglars and point out all the elements that they're either happy to see or, uh, unhappy to see. Yeah. As you, as you go through and you, and you read the book, it's not quite the, here's how to burgle. One uh, would hope not. One would hope not. It is, uh, although the uh, book that I reviewed, uh, or consumed at the same time, um, called, uh, how to steal the Mona Lisa is, and is also worth reading, but this is one where you go through it and you're like, Oh, look at that, that I'll, I can do that in my, in my game. That will be good for my heist adventures. Um, Oh, look at that. That's a useful tip. Oh, that's a cool thing for the supervillain to have done. Oh, what if you were doing that to a bunch of, um, uh, occult shops instead of a bunch of toy stores, you know, that kind of thing. And so you can, you can go through and you can get inspiration for incident, but I'm not sure that it is the, you know, uh, the complete, a thieves guide for your role playing game. What it is more is a big box of incident and ideas with a philosophical core that I personally found unconvincing, but that uh, it is still you know worth uh, mulling over. I think right. It's it's fascinating to think of the intersection between physical urban geography and the unexpected uses that it gets put to, including uh, by burglars. Yes. Well, I think we've officially told people more and can move on to our final segment. When you signed up to risk life and limb to protect the global order, 
you didn't know you'd be going up against the cultists, conspirators, creatures, and inexpressible horrors of the Cthulhu mythos. But that's exactly what happens when you join Delta Green, the most covert of covert security agencies. Fortunately, you now have the Delta Green Agent's Handbook to somewhat lengthen your career as a field operative. This player's only rulebook for Delta Green the role-playing game tells you everything you need to know about character creation, investigation, combat, sanity, gear, agencies that will help and hinder your progress, and scenes of the home front that show you what you're fighting for, and dying for, and maybe occasionally horribly resurrected for. Grab the Delta Green Agent's Handbook from Arc Dream Publishing in oh-so-secure PDF format at RPG Now. It's time to once more ramble up the creaking cobweb stairs, uh, to nod to the glowering portrait of Madame Blavatsky, and then head on into the Edwardian parlor of the consulting occultist. And this time, a Patreon backer, Alan Wilkins to be specific, wants to consult the consulting occultist on Alan Moore. This is the self-same uh, writer of uh, comic books and other things, known for the Watchmen and Swamp Thing and... Uh, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. But Alan Moore, of course, is also uh, in his uh, personal and essay writing life a practicing occultist. So, Ken, what sort of occultist is Alan Moore? Uh, Alan Moore is the best sort of occultist, one who actually uh, does something useful as opposed to sit around and annoy people. I was hoping he would be a useful occultist or he would is. have 15 minutes to kill. Well, we could spend 15 minutes just praising Alan Moore. He, I have said before, and I will say again, that to be living in the time of Alan Moore's creation is like to have been living in London while Shakespeare was writing plays. There is He is the Shakespeare of comics. and. Uh, we are lucky to be around to see what he does next every time he does it. I am a unabashed fan of Alan Moore. I think that he is just an epical talent. And when he is taken from us, one hopes ascending up into a, a cabalistic spiral collected by snake gods and cherubim, we will, uh, we will miss him greatly. But until that time, uh, reading Alan Moore is one of the great experiences you can have as a comics fan. Alan Moore's occultism is, by and large, a sort of post-Crowleyan, golden dawny sort of ceremonial magic, which is to say that he believes that the act of will creates a magical effect. And the act of will that Alan Moore specializes in, greatly for us, is creating stories and telling them in comics form. And the act of producing symbol and word and image in concordance with his Alan Moore's will is a magical act. And he's as much as said that being an artist in this world is as close as we can get in our industrial era to being a shaman and uh, a voice for spirits or muses or whatever you want to call it that speak through him into his art form. Now, you don't have to believe in muses. You don't have to believe in the V for Vendetta guy. You don't have to believe in any of those figures to understand that when Alan Moore understands his art as an occult act, that means that his art is going to have lots of uh, deep, wonderful, juicy meaning in it because Alan Moore is putting it there. And the best, I think, guide to Alan Moore's occultism both as a creator and as what he believes, is to read Promethea, which was his comic series about a sort of Wonder Woman-y figure who, it turns out, is an archetypal 
Wonder Woman-y figure who appears throughout time as mankind needs her. And during a bravura stretch of the comic, it recapitulates the Kabbalistic journey from Malkuth up uh, up to the, the Godhead Kether. And in that stretch of Promethea, you have pretty much everything Alan Moore wants to tell you uh, about the occult, all laid out in just astonishing, astonishing imagery by J.H. Williams uh, III. So I would say read Promethea and you will understand at least as much of Alan Moore's occult as I do, and perhaps as much as Alan Moore does. Um, he references in Promethea the artist Austin Osman Spare, who was a also a post-Golden Dawn. He was a, a contemporary of Crowley, who believed in the art as a magical act, and that the uh, drawing of figures created them in a magical as well as a illustrative way. And uh, Spare would draw sigils that would bring about actions in the real world. Uh, that is a, a thing that Moore does less overtly, but I think if you look at the patterns that his characters are always discovering, creating, the patterns of his scripts, the way that they all form a geometrical form, you can notice that Alan Moore is very spare-like in that he is creating uh, sigils uh, to bring about um, a magical effect. And even if the magical effect is just someone saying, my golly, Watchmen was really good, then that's still uh, that's still a magical effect that he has intended uh, magically. Right. And uh, today, he sort of feels that he called up something he couldn't put down <laughs> oh, in yes. uh, ushering in the uh, 80s, 90s uh, flood of uh, dark comics that uh you know why the, we don't call up the, demons the worst people. thing that you can do as a as a creator is to inspire lesser disciples and mm -hmm. he did that big time and uh speaking of the you know the Zack snyder thing that that's you know that that aesthetic you know his work turned into that darker thing that he now uh, abjures um are there other examples of things that he uh does does he make supernatural claims other than his ability to create compelling art, which of course brings in the question of whether the occult talk is meant to be taken literally or as metaphor. Does he make literal claims of the supernatural? Well, one of the most wonderful things about Alan Moore is that while maintaining that uh, the world is full of uh, numinous figures who might as well be called gods, while maintaining that uh, the act of magic is a real act, and while maintaining that ceremonial uh, magic creates real effects, he insists that his, per her, his personal deity is the Roman snake god Glycon, who was absolutely a fake god made up by the people who ran him as a uh, scam on rubes. Glycon <laughs> was literally a snake puppet. And you'd put your arm into Glycon and you'd say, Glycon says everyone give Glycon money and maidens. And, and when did Glycon flourish? Glycon flourished um, uh, in the, what do I want to say? Uh, first century, second century AD. He was circa the same time as Apollonius of Tyana. He's around, um, uh, uh, 150 AD, give or take. Right. So he's when things are starting to kind of disintegrate and, and break up and people are looking for new, uh, divine entities and thoughts to start pursuing. And some of them go to Glycon. Exactly. And, uh, the notion that Alan Moore takes as his magical patron, uh, a literal pretend puppet god is part of why Alan Moore can be trusted on the occult in a way that other people cannot. 
And I, I, I don't know that he, um, for example, uh, Grant Morrison, the man who would be Alan Moore, uh, has said that he believes that sigil magic, for example, saved the invisibles from being canceled or whatever else, or did other magical things in his life. And he's very open about this. I did this magical ritual and I had this magical effect and I did this magical ritual and I had this magical effect. And I think I have not read at least Alan Moore saying anything similar. Alan Moore has basically said, uh, not in so many words that my entire life has been a magical act and look, I have had a magical effect. Now, whether it's cause and effect or not is really not up to me, you, or anyone to decide. And in fact, there may be many roads to the truth. He, um, again, in Promethea, you very much get the understanding that the, the road that Promethea is following is a universal road, but that there are lots of paths onto it. And so I, I think that he is, um, a, if there's such a thing as a populist Gnostic, I think that that might be what what more sort of um, ongoing belief system is uh, a, a pantheist in the sort of broadest and least uh, uh, harmful uh, sense of the term. And, and so I don't know that more ever has said in so many words, uh, I really needed to, you know, get a parking spot and I did magic and whoop, a parking spot appeared or has said anything else about uh, the effect of his magic in the world, except that, Oh, look at that. You've been personally moved by my art. Congratulations. My magic worked. Um, he doesn't seem to have the sort of egomania that say Crowley does of saying, I put a curse on that guy and then look at that. He's been walking with a limp ever since or whatever. Uh, that doesn't seem to be uh, more seen. Um, and certainly in the, in the way that he was introduced to magic, which according to him was while he was writing from hell about, uh, insane Freemason mass murderers. I think that's a good way to say this could really get serious if I don't be careful with it. And again, like you say, he may actually have called up a demon he couldn't put down when he created Watchmen. And therefore his uh, dislike for Frank Miller may be a little bit of, um, uh, of recognition at what he himself has done. And so taken as metaphor, his take on the creative process basically is that uh, it is about will. It is about uh, taking things seriously and not seriously at the same time of embracing the ambiguity of saying that I am a, uh, magic is real. My life is real. Uh, and the, uh, real snake God that I worship is a fake mm -hmm. and that it is about, uh, you know, to take as a creator, the idea that what you're doing, what you're trying to bring into the world is something that is, uh, takes a lot of uh, both seriousness and double perspective and, uh, you know, that will is another way of saying uh, discipline and also being uncompromising about your vision. And certainly he's been given a lot of opportunity over the years to compromise and to accept and promote his vision as big part of the bigger entertainment complex and has always uh, stubbornly stuck to his, his guns and sort of distanced himself from all of that. And, uh, you know, he's also, I think, strikes me as sort of the kind of the last wave of creators who could create a mystique about themselves in a pre-social media world where now uh, as creators, there's a new kind of uh, contradiction beginning to creep in where the artist is someone who is, you know, not someone who seeks to offend, but is willing to acknowledge that sometimes art hurts and that not everybody likes it and that your main job is to express uh, something true and perhaps uh, troubling that arises from yourself versus the current set of pressures to 
uh, be more of a pleaser and be on social media and treat everyone as a customer because you're going to have to crowdfund, uh, for example, if you have a Patreon campaign for your podcast and uh, that there is something uh, very uh, not just mystical but kind of uncompromising about him that I think all creators could stand to be at least a little bit more of and don't necessarily uh, have the opportunity in, in the new uh, environment that's cropping up around us. Yeah, uh, you know, it, it, it's impossible to judge uh, an artist of a different generation by the standards of the current generation, or it's pointless at least. Um, but I think that, you know, even to the extent that art has changed or the artist's relationship with the audience has changed, Moore's relationship with the audience is not that he, he does not seek out the role of someone you don't seek out either, right? He's not like, you know, I'm up here on my mountain uh, as a guru. Uh, you must labor to come to me. Moore is literally just, he wants to live in Northampton because he thinks Northampton, yeah. you know, has made him he who he is. He wants fewer disciples. He wants fewer disciples. And if you uh, love Alan Moore, great. And if you don't love Alan Moore, great. His he He doesn't really depend on, you know, adulation one way or the other. I mean, obviously a cynic could say, well, sure, because he's sitting on his giant pile of, of DC money. But on the other hand, he's turned down an even gianter pile of DC money, uh, which uh, he started doing pretty much the instant he could, as opposed to much later after he'd uh, made giant chunks of change. And he's created, and he's continued to create and push himself as an artist in a way. And he's also not afraid to go back and call out, some of his weaker stuff. Like he goes back and he says, yeah, the killing joke was a mistake. I shouldn't have written it that way. And the only reason to read it really is because of Brian Bolland's art. And you know, that's, uh, I, I think that happens to be pretty accurate, but you know, everything Shakespeare didn't do was a, a lister either. So, uh, right. So, uh, any, uh, I guess you mentioned the comic books. Are there essays or anything that you want to point people to that will further illuminate his, uh, occult side? I, I think that you can also, I mean, recently he has sort of moved into a Lovecraftian, phase. So I would recommend reading Neonomicon and Providence and the Courtyard, which are his responses to Lovecraft. And I think that he recognizes the power of Lovecraft while, like many people do, uh, rejecting a lot of the sources of the power of Lovecraft, but rather than sort of pretend it away, he is really engaging with it in a way that makes a lot of people super uncomfortable. So, um, uh, so Neonomicon, for example, turns out to be about horrific, monstrous, incest, uh, uh, miscegenating, uh, rape fantasies. And people are like, well, that's very, very disturbing. And that's kind of Alan Moore's point is like, that's why Lovecraft is also disturbing is because that's all down in his uh, amygdala. And I'm just bringing it out for you to look at. Um, I think you can also, if you can find them, he has a sort of combination spoken word, uh, some music and magical working, uh, that he calls, uh, the moon and serpent. And they've got, I think, three performances, uh, that you can get on CD, uh, the Birth Call, Moon and Serpent, Ag Grand Egyptian Theater of Marvels, Highbury Working, uh, oh, look at that. There's more, uh, Snakes and Ladders and Angel Passage. I've heard four of them and some of them have been released in comic book form as well. Uh, I know that the Birth Call and I think Highbury Working are both, uh, viable in comic form where the words that more spoke are, are present there. So you can look into those. Uh, the hybrid working is a really great example of psychogeography as magic. So if you remember back to whichever episode it was, we were talking about psychogeography. Um, uh, then that is a, 
that is a really super example of psychogeography of a place in that, in that case, the gormless area of Highbury and pulling that up into a magical place via what he called a beat seance. And so that was uh, pretty neat to listen to. So you can go find those as well. And then you'll also get to hear what Alan Moore's voice sounds like, and then you'll never get it out of your head when you read it. Uh, well, uh, that's always a good thing to do. There are certain authors who uh, improve immensely uh, when you can hear uh, their voice in your head. For example, I don't think you can really read William S. Burroughs and understand it until you can get the cadence in your head. <laughs> uh, and anyway, we've hit the bibliography, which must mean that we're at the end of another episode. So uh, thanks for listening, folks, and tune in next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Phoenix. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Rank yourself among such distinguished supporters as... Rob Abrazado. Nostra Dunwich. Jason Detman. Yuri Horneman. And Martin Rundqvist. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>